This is an ABC podcast. Stop everything except the eating of chocolate eggs, if that's your thing. Hello, Beverly Wang, on this long weekend. Hello, Benjamin Law, and we have a multi faith convergence this year with Easter, Passover, and Ramadan happening. At the same time, of course, Ramadan lasts a whole month, so extends beyond this weekend. But that's quite a notable convergence, do you not think so? Mm-hmm, absolutely. Now, whether you're gorging on chocolate, eating matzah, or breaking your daily fast, we are glad to keep you company on Stop Everything. Benjamin Law, what's in the highlights drawer for this episode? Only brilliant riches, Beverly, an embarrassment <laughs> of goods. Let's kick off with a recommendation for something to watch this long weekend. Great family viewing. But you definitely don't need kids around to watch this film. I didn't. So there's something here for all ages. And it's Pixar's Turning Red. This is a movie that has been on high rotation in my home since its release. I have lost count of the number of times Turning Red is on in the background. If you are tiring up Encanto and we don't talk about Bruno, may I suggest for a palate cleanse a bit of Turning Red? Now, aside from a, shall we say, infamous Cinema Blend review that has since been removed from the website, Turning Red has been met with overwhelmingly positive reviews for its coming-of-age story about 13-year-old Maylin Lee. She's voiced by a newcomer, Rosalie Chang, grappling not just with the newfound ability of transforming into a huge, fluffy red panda... I mean, that's enough on your plate, right? But she's also wrestling with the strains on her relationship with her loving, but, you know, somewhat helicopterish mother, Ming, voiced by legend Sandra Oh, and her tight-knit group of boy band-loving friends, Miriam, Abby and Priya, all of which are just classic Halloween costumes in the making, as she grapples with growing up, growing away from her family, and what to do about her red panda persona. connection with red pandas. Are you kidding me? This little quirk brought us in our family. Oh. You were so cute. Sick. I've always wanted a tail. I'm a freak. Whoa. You're you. Any strong emotion yes. will release the panda. My whole life I've been perfect little May May. But maybe I like this new me. Turning Red is directed by Domi Shi, a Chinese-Canadian filmmaker who has been breaking ground in a very big way. In 2019, Domi won the Academy Award for Best Animated Short with a film called Bao. In the process, she became the first woman to direct an animated short at Pixar. And she's now followed that up by becoming the first female to direct an animated feature at Pixar with Turning Red. And we caught up with Domi Shi ahead of the film's release on Disney+. Domi Shi, welcome to Stop Everything. Good to be here. Congratulations on Turning Red. I loved this movie so much. Turning Red is about Maylin Lee. She's a Chinese-Canadian. She's 13 years old, and it's also about her group of friends. Now, you co-wrote the screenplay, and aside from the parts where Maylin transforms into a red panda, which I'm assuming is not autobiographical in any way, how much of Turning Red is drawn from your own life? Oh, I feel like I definitely was May Lynn Lee when I was 13. Um, I was that dorky, excitable Chinese Canadian girl growing up in the early aughts in Canada who went from being her mom's perfect little daughter to undergoing puberty and getting bigger and hairier and 
more hormonal and fighting with my mom every day. And I just remember not understanding like what was going on, like why was this happening? And I think making this movie, I wanted to kind of go back to that time and understand that dynamic and that conflict between me and my mom and my body and my friends from all angles, from the perspective of myself, but also from my mom who was witnessing all of this change happening and changing herself as well. Domi, question from a fellow Canadian over here. Oh. Yeah. Hi. Turning Red is set in Toronto in Canada in the early aughts, as you said. Bao, which you won an Academy Award for, is also about a Chinese-Canadian family in Toronto. I saw that CN Tower in the backdrop. And there Mm -hmm. are so many specific visual and script references to Toronto. So I would love to hear your thoughts on why it's so important for you to locate your work in Toronto, Canada. Ah, any opportunity I can get to give a shout out to my hometown, I gladly take. I just love Toronto. I feel like it's such a unique and diverse city that's always dressed up as an American city in movies and TV shows, and it never really gets its flowers. So yeah, like any chance I can get, I want to feature Toronto in some way. And I just love the opportunity to be able to showcase the diversity of the city that I grew up in, in the people and the crowds that you see in the movie and in May's classmates and her friends. I just feel lucky that I was able to grow up in an environment where I didn't feel like othered. I mean, I felt othered in other ways, like being like chubby and nerdy and really into anime, but not in like the sense of being the only Asian. And I just wanted to be able to celebrate that on the big screen with this movie. (laughs) Yeah, you don't get to see that that much. Is that something that you had to fight for ever setting your work in Canada? And like you say, talk a little bit more about the possibilities that are opened up when you choose to locate it specifically in that place. We never got any pushback from setting it in Toronto. I think, in fact, that added to the charm and specificity of the story that we placed it in a Canadian city. I also think like a lot of my American colleagues and friends, they find Canada and Canadians so quirky and interesting and mysterious (laughs) that they were kind of curious about setting this story in Canada and all of the little Canadianisms that I was able to add to the story. Mm. Domi, I am not a 13 Chinese Canadian (laughs) old girl going through puberty and having that teenage angst, but this film really spoke to me, really hit me in the solar plexus. And it made me think that Lately, we've seen so many Disney and Pixar animated features really willing and trusting the audience to go deeper with subject matter and what they're saying. I think of how Frozen 2 is about the legacy of colonization and Canto is about intergenerational trauma. What did you want to say and explore and trust the audience with when it came to Turning Red? My hope is that when audiences watch the movie, like their takeaway is to embrace their own inner pandas embrace the messy side of themselves that they were probably taught at a young age to like push away, to like get rid of that. They're able to embrace the messiness of growing up of relationships with your family members, with your friends, and that all of that is okay. Like perfection is impossible. And that's not what growing up and being an adult is, you know? Do you think it will be taken differently by different generations watching the film as well? I think of the parents, especially first-generation migrants who are watching this film and how it might hit them. Yeah, I think so. I mean, some of my favorite movies are the ones that I can go back and revisit at different points in my life and have different takeaways from. And I definitely think that's the case with Turning Red too. I think young kids will get a kick out of seeing this like girl poofing back and forth from a cuddly panda to a girl and a lot of the humor and the color and the animation in the film. I think tweens and teens can really see themselves in like May's struggle with like growing up and trying to figure out like who to honor and who to be and her struggles with her body and like loving herself. I mean, adults can identify with that too. And definitely parents can really see themselves in like Ming's struggle with being a parent and trying not to fly off the handle when her daughter's doing something insane. And my hope is that audience members, all audience members can see a little bit of themselves in each of the characters. Demi, we've seen a lot of adorable animated animals in our time, and the red panda in Turning Red is super cute. But it made me think, that's interesting, red panda, not giant panda. 
Mm-hmm. Why did you decide to go red panda, not giant panda, which is kind of the dominant panda of our pop culture? Yeah, I think it's exactly, as you said, it's because the giant black and white panda, like we've seen movies where that is featured so heavily. And I feel like red pandas, they're literally called the lesser panda in some Asian languages. I think in Japanese, I haven't seen a lot of stories about red pandas yet. And that just presented a really exciting opportunity to show audiences something they haven't seen before, but also gave us an opportunity to come up with our own mythology and lore for this red panda, the spirit that has taken over this family and just gave us a lot of creative freedom. So what kind of research into the red panda did you go? How deep into red panda biology did you go? (laughs) We took several trips with the crew, with the animators to the San Francisco Zoo, where there's like two red pandas that are there. And we studied and sketched them. I really wanted to hold them. But then the zookeeper was like, you shouldn't because they can actually be quite vicious and dangerous, which made me want to touch them even more. We just asked them lots of questions about their like mannerisms. They have a lot in common with teenagers. Like they sleep all the time. They eat junk food. They're omnivores, but all they eat is bamboo because that's just what's available. So it just reminded me of a teenager just like <laughs> eating chips and junk nonstop. They are like close with their moms. And it was just really fun, like trying to study them and see if we can put any of their mannerisms into pandemic. Like when they get startled, they hold their paws up and they try to appear really big. And we incorporated that into a couple of scenes in the movie. Justice for the red panda, not the lesser panda after all. Now, most people have a pretty good idea of what it means to direct a live action film. How is directing animation similar or different? Uh, I think the principles of filmmaking are the same. The writing is similar. You're just trying to tell a story that will connect with audiences and you're trying to tell it in the most visual and compelling way. I think that's the same in animation, live action. Animation just takes a longer time than live action and really takes an entire village to build everything from scratch that you see on the screen And, you know, especially at Pixar, you know, Pixar films are very director driven and the stories come from a very personal place for each of the directors. And they're very heavily involved in the writing of the stories of the characters. And there's just a lot more (laughs) technical work that goes into animated films. But also in that, like, there's a lot more control, I think, a director has more control over the final product in that they can create these fantastical, beautiful fantasy worlds. They can go in and noodle over character, like facial acting, like raise an eyebrow, like a millimeter higher for a character or adjust lighting and like tweak a prop. All of that stuff is kind of at your disposal in animation. Whereas in live action, sometimes you're kind of forced to work with the footage that you have. But at the end of the day, like both are just forms of visual storytelling. Sounds like a dream job. What about when it comes to casting and directing the voices? You've got Rosalie Chang as Malin and you've got Canadian Asian icon Sandra Oh playing her mom Ming. That relationship is so critical to the film. What was the process of making sure that they would have the right chemistry you were looking for? Yeah, man, we found Rosalie pretty early on, like four years ago. She sent an an audition tape for May. And just the moment I heard her voice, that dorky, sweet, earnest, imperfect voice, I knew that was May. I just loved how like she wasn't super, super trained. Like she didn't have that like perfect enunciation. She just felt like a real Asian girl. And that's what made us really like fall in love with her as May. And then as for Sandra, like, you know, she was on the top of our list when it came to casting for Ming. You know, I've always been a fan of hers, like ever since like Sideways and then Grey's Anatomy, Killing Eve. And I just love how much range she has. And I felt like in order for Ming to work as a character, we really needed an actress who was able to switch from being like sharp and intense to like really, really warm and loving to kooky and obsessive, to sassy and biting. And we needed an actress who could encompass all of that. And Sandra was the actress to do that. And 
so easily that character could go into like stereotype, but she was always able to ground Ming's performance from like a place of love and warmth. And it could have only been her as Ming. I can only imagine the conversations that you and the other creatives were having about culture and family when making this film. What are the conversations you want families having once they come out of watching Turning Red? My hope is that families watch this movie, like they just can realize and accept just how hard it is to grow up and that growing up is messy for everybody, for the kid who's going through it, but also for the parent who's like watching it happen too. And that like, both sides can kind of look at each other from like more of an equal plane and just, you know, accept and embrace that this is going to be messy. We're going to be fighting, but it's totally normal and it's going to be okay. Domi, she is the director and co-writer of Turning Red, streaming now on Disney+. And this is a banger from the Turning Red soundtrack, You Know What's Up by Four Town the early aughts boy band featured in Turning Red. Now, fun fact, Four Town songs were written by Academy Award-winning brother-sister duo Billie Eilish and Phineas O'Connell, and they have lovingly spoofed that era perfectly. And for all you Four Tannies out there, Phineas sings the part of Jesse. You know what's up So Turning Red, Dummy She and animated boy band 4Town bringing the good vibes to this long weekend here on Stop Everything, this highlights episode. Now for more fabulousness. Here is someone who truly embodies the definition of fabulous like no one else. He is a Grammy winner, a Tony winner, an Emmy winner and king of the red carpet, Billy Porter. He just needs one Oscar and he's an EGOT baby. Now, Billy Porter won his Tonys for playing Lola in Kinky Boots and his Emmy for playing Pray Tell in Pose, which is the series about New York City's ballroom scene in the late 80s and early 90s. I used to take that mic in my hands. The category is... And it made me feel... Alive. Your life matters. This job is not for the faint of heart. You're a trans woman of color working in a hospital. I'm just trying to stay afloat. Is this about your legacy? No, it's about our legacy. Five, six, seven, eight. We rose from the bottom. And we became stars. Together we make a statement. I'm in. We're just gonna be ourselves and that's that. The balls ain't what they used to be. Cash prizes and tacky lip syncs. There used to be the sense of urgency and community, and then folks just started dying. Deep alone inside. That's Billy Porter in full flight as Pray Tell, ballroom MC of Pose on FX and Binge in Australia. When Billy Porter won an Emmy in 2019 for playing Pray Tell, he became the first openly gay black male to win the award for best male lead in a drama series. Here's what he said in his acceptance speech. Oh, the category is love, y'all, love. I am so overwhelmed and I am so overjoyed to have lived long enough to see this day. James Baldwin said, took many years of vomiting up all the filth that I had been taught about myself and halfway believed before I could walk around this earth like I had the right to be here. I have the right. You have the right. We all have the right. There were so many people 
who helped me get here along the way, so I'm going to just say thank you. Thank you, first of all, to the other exquisitely talented men in my category. I love you all so much. It is such an honor to be up here breathing the same air that y'all breathe. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, my mama, Clorinda, there's no stronger, more resilient woman who has graced this earth. I love you, mommy. Here's our conversation with Billy Porter. And since it was one for Stop Everything Celebrity Memoir Book Club Specials, we started with his memoir, Unprotected, which was released in October 2021. Billy Porter, welcome to Stop Everything. Thank you. Hey, Billy, let's start with the book that you have just written, Unprotected, and let's start at the beginning. This is your memoir, but you start with your mother, and you mention her name in the very first sentence of the book, and you go on to share a memory that predates you, the story of her birth. Yes. Why did you want to start there? Because I wanted to speak about the idea of trauma and the reality that trauma is passed down in the womb generationally, and that the only way for us to heal it is to understand how it exists um, so we can attack it directly in the present, how it exists in the past, how it you know, is cellular, and how we can get to the cells of it so that we can try to maybe possibly heal and have a trauma-free life or a less trauma-filled yeah. life. <laughs> Hey, Billy, this might be a bit of a therapist slash philosopher question, but has writing about the past, looking back at the stories shared in Unprotected, given you any new insights, reflections, understanding on what you've lived through? Yes. You know, I, I sat down to write it and I knew that, you know, going back to these stories would reveal things that would sort of lead me to peace in some way, lead me to some sort of healing. And it has, you know, in a lot of ways. And I also understand because of it that life is a journey and not a destination. You know, every facet of it is a journey. I think the best of ourselves understands that and that we can always keep growing and always keep learning and always keep deepening until we're out of here. And that is what I have learned in this process. And um, it's been really healing. Billy, there's so much in this book that you're candid about from your childhood to present day. And writing a memoir requires of us exposing so much of ourselves if we're the author. I wonder, did you have any reservations about anything that you were putting to page and sharing with the readers? You know, I didn't have any reservations in the moment of doing it. I was lucky and blessed and, you know, habitually as an artist, I know how to do it and not block myself. It's then afterwards where you're rewriting and sort of taking a step back and realizing what you've actually written. And for me, it was less about me exposing myself and more for me about making sure that the other people that I'm talking about in my story are not being exposed in any sort of like careless way, you know, because it's not a tell all, you know, I'm not trying to read people. I'm not trying to expect like, that's not what this book is. And so in those moments, I just wanted to make sure that the perspective of the story was always focused on me and my journey and not on the other people who just happened to be in the story if that makes sense. Yeah. So as you've been writing, I wonder what are the connections you've been making between 2021 Billy Porter and past Billy Porter coming to the years from your childhood and after that? Well, you know, one of the things that really kicked the writing in gear, because there was a book agent who came to me in 2014. And this is when the morsel of the idea started. So, you know, it's been almost eight years. And I was having a hard time at the beginning. Like, of course, the theme is overcoming adversity, but like specifically, how do I tell that story? That's so, such a broadly themed idea. And, 
you know, I was having a lot of stops and starts and I couldn't find a writing rhythm. And then COVID happened and we were all in our homes. And I had to sit and watch the news and watch our government fumble and bumble and lie and muck it up. And it reminded me a lot of living in the AIDS crisis. For me, it was very traumatizing and still is to this day. And that is where the title came. You know, I'm talking about feeling and being unprotected in the micro, which is my life, but also there's a broader context with all of us in the macro, being unprotected, period, by the leaders of our lands who are supposed to be protecting the people who very often care nothing about us. And I'm talking about action. You know, I grew up where it's like actions speak louder than words. Everybody can talk a good game, but it's your actions that show me the real person and the real human being. And the actions of many of our leaders around the world during this pandemic were not good mm. and still aren't good. And so that was really unnerving and exposing. And I wanted to write about it. Billy, it's so interesting to hear you connect the past and the present, talking about this modern pandemic that we're living through. And of course, talking about this pandemic that so many of us have lived through, which is HIV AIDS. It reminds me that earlier this year, we spoke to Poe's co-creator, Stephen Canals, mm -hmm. and he talked about that moment where you disclosed your HIV status to the cast and crew of that show. Why was that important for you to do? Well, there's a shame that comes with the HIV diagnosis. There's a shame, there's a stigma. And the reality is growing up in a religious family, being a black queer person, the shame started early. Shame is the only thing I know. And shame is a silencer and thereby a killer. Silence is a murderer. And it's slow, it's steady, it's not necessarily quick, but it will rob you of your life. The shame was debilitating and it was robbing me of the joy that my life is. So I made the decision to free myself. And that was a part of the process was to speak it so that the shame could be released. And that happened. And it's been glorious. Well, you know what else is glorious, Billy Porter, is your fashion. <laughs> you are renowned for your show-stopping looks on the red carpet at award shows and the Met Gala. I'd love to talk fashion with you. But also, hearing you talk about shame, I think there's a connection. Because early on in Unprotected, you write about how your attraction to beautiful, soft, feminine clothes and accessories set you apart as a young child, and you were made to feel shame for being a boy who loved pretty clothes. Yes. So under those circumstances, how did you find ways to feed your love for fashion and keep it alive? And then also, what was a turning point for you as an adult when you felt ready to let that fashion flag fly so high and so vibrantly again, because it really has been an evolution for you. Yeah, I have to say that my attraction to my auntie's high heels or feminine clothing as a kid was less about wanting to be feminine to me and more about having access to more than one kind of silhouette if that makes sense. It's like men are confined to wearing suits and women have so many other silhouettes to choose from. And so, you know, I love men's tailoring and my favorite thing as a kid was to go and get my Easter suit and my Christmas suit every year. So I didn't really know that there was this desire to adorn feminine clothing 
you know what I mean? To wear dresses, if you will. Like it wasn't really that. Even after Kinky Boots and playing a drag queen, it didn't occur to me that I could and should play with the duality of the feminine and the masculine until I was on the search. You know, I had finished Kinky Boots and I was getting ready to go on the road with my music at the time. It was my Richard Rogers album at the time. And I knew that I wanted to cross back over into mainstream music and I knew I needed a look. And I just stumbled across this designer, Rick Owens in New York. And, you know, he's a goth rock and roll, gender bendy kind of designer. And so I walked into the store and the salesperson was like, yeah, it's all of these clothes are, anybody can wear any of them. Like the whole idea is that there is no gender. And that's when everything changed. It was like, oh, well, I like this dress or I like this top or I like these pants or I like that. And it, and it became less about gender and more about the fabulous. Mm-hmm. And then Pose happened. And I realized if there's any time that I could sort of play with this and the role that I have in the market would support me playing with these ideas, it would be me in Pose playing the character of Pray Tell. This is when I could do it and it would actually make logical sense if in fact I needed to be logical. Billy, let's talk about fabulous. Let's talk about play because Beverly and I, excuse us, we are going to have a bit of a fan moment here. Beverly compiled <laughs> the greatest hits of your outfits. Of just one year, of 2019 only. <laughs> this is just one year alone. I mean, January 2019, Golden Globes, your embroidered suit with a huge pink cape. February that year, the Oscars, the Christian Siriano tuxedo gown, which had Glenn Close gagging in the background. <laughs> it's a gifable <laughs> moment. May that year, the Met Gala, the golden winged sun god oh my God. ensemble for camp, all the shirtless men. I fainted. <laughs> <laughs> and then the Tony Awards, this gender fluid evening suit made from salvage curtain from the kinky boot set with an embroidered uterus motif, no less. Not something that we've taken to the grocery shop. <laughs> these are iconic looks, Billy. When it comes to creating these looks, collaborating and making them real, what's the process like? Well, we were evolving. We were developing the process in the moment. And it starts with the gathering. You know, what is it? Where are we going? What's the theme of the evening? If there is one, whether it's the Golden Globes or the Tonys, the theatrics of that, you know, so it's literally just about like the spark of an idea and following it through to fruition and having no fear about it. I think for me, I didn't have any fear. And the goal for me is to be a walking piece of political art every time I show up. and. You know, it doesn't take much in this world because it's still a conversation when a man shows up in a dress. People are still talking about it. So I guess, you know, that's a part of the conversation. But for me, as I've delved into the why and the wherefore of it, it's not just about a dress. It's not just about a man in a dress, right? It's about the deeper conversation, which is the masculine and the feminine. When women are associated with masculinity, it is considered strong because it comes from the patriarchy and thereby better. If a man is associated with a feminine silhouette, it's gross and disgusting and causes ire in people. So what is that saying? And that's the conversation that I'm having every time I show up and more specifically right now, with the balance of both. You know, I've been leaning into how do we have the balance of both? I stand at the intersection of both, of the masculine and the feminine, and I'm proud of of both of those energies equally balanced inside of me. And so I want to talk about that and um, make that a good thing. So you've talked about making conversations happen around gender and fashion and really the needless division that we have in this binary. 
And I think that's a really amazing conversation that you've opened up. But Billy, I also want to know about like the nitty gritty of getting into one of those outfits. Like I'm just thinking about the winged camp <laughs> Met Gala. That outfit, just take me into like the headspace. You're in a gold outfit with wings. A bodysuit. A bodysuit. Pardon me. You've got a headdress on. You're being carried in. It's the Met Gala, like the most high stakes fashion event of the world. What is going through your head as you're making that entrance? What are you thinking about? Um, well, I'm thinking about my form, first of all. You know, I'm zipped into a bodysuit. I have spanks on underneath. <laughs> I can't breathe. The headpiece is digging into my temples. And I'm sitting on this thing where, like, I'm so twisted up and I have to look regal and I have to remain regal until I get on top of it. And I didn't understand that, like, a lot of the audience is behind you across the street. And so a lot of people play to the audience across the street. So I was trying to play to the audience across the street and I sort of like had to twist myself. And in the twist, the whole right side of my body started to cramp. Oh, no. You know, so it was like in full Charlie horse, the whole right side of my body was in full Charlie horse cramp for about three to four minutes. And I mean, even after I untwisted myself and got down and got off and started walking, it was like my whole right side <laughs> was still in a Charlie horse. Oh my crib. God. Beauty is pain, everybody. Beauty is pain. Beauty is pain. You know, but it was exhilarating moment because as an artist, as a show businessman, I looked at the landscape for years and knew that fashion should be a part of it. You know, I looked at the women more because the women get to play in that space more. And it's a different kind of revenue stream for them than it is for the men. And I wanted to challenge that. And it was in that moment, you know, it was the one, two, three punch because I had the first one at the Golden Globes, like you said, and then the Oscars that sort of changed the game. And then this was like, I'm here to stay. The I'm here to stay moment. It's not a fluke. Get ready. Because the world has changed with me. And that is just powerful and it's great. And I feel like I've been able to empower the generation behind me and even the generation who's with me. You know, look at what the market looks like now. Look at how many men are inside of a new conversation who are playing with different kinds of silhouettes, whether they're feminine or not, but just playing in a way that is freeing, I believe, and useful to um, breaking down this toxically masculine binary. But Billy, I have to press because I did read some quite negative quotes that you had about Harry Styles being on the cover of Vogue. Let, let me just say, wasn't negative quotes about Harry Styles being on the cover of Vogue. Somebody asked me a question and I answered the question viscerally, right? I started the conversation. Mm -hmm. And what I was saying and what I'm talking about are the systems that mute the color, that mute the people who create it. Right? I'm not talking about Harry Styles, actually. I'm talking about the systems of oppression that take this moment, right? The moment of this new fashion conversation that started with a Black queer man. And to move the conversation forward, it's pushed in the hands of a white cisgendered person. That's all I'm saying. This is what the world is. This is not about Harry Styles. This is about the systems of oppression that continue to erase the creators of something. This isn't the first time, you know, Black people have been appropriated. You know, our culture has been appropriated since the beginning of time. I'm talking about that. You know what I mean? I'm talking about the systems of oppression, right? The choices that I've made for my entire life blocked me from my entire life from things. These choices that I've made, it's not a game, 
right? So I've worked for decades and taken all the hits for my entire life that come with this decision of me simply just putting on a dress, you know, and that can then totally be erased. So you would cop consequences where someone like him is praised for doing a similar thing. Whereas yeah. for you, it's, it's a risk. And it's not a risk for him. Mm -hmm. that, that's all I'm saying. It's not a risk for the white man to do it. You know, and my point is he's a white man with power that gives him a different kind of power than me. So I lay everything out on the line. It actually ends up working. And then it just takes one white person to do it. And the conversation is all about that. This is the world that we live in. I'm bringing light to that uncomfortable conversation. That's an uncomfortable conversation that we need to have. It's all good. You know, I'm lucky. <laughs> you know, I get to actually reap the benefits of having blazed trails and kicked down doors. I get to reap the benefits of that. That's not lost on me, you know, because the generations who kick the doors down do not always get to benefit from that. I'm getting to benefit from it too. And so inside of benefiting from it, I have to be at the forefront of the uncomfortable conversation, which is, well, why was it him and not me? That's all. Why was it him? There are many things that go into that. You know, he's more famous than me. He has a bigger audience than me. Absolutely. So then we go back to the next conversation about that because I'm 52 years old. So it's actually not about the person. I'm talking about the systems that block people like me from being in the mainstream. And it's easy to take sound bites and create this space where we're like dragging each other and canceling each other. That was not my intention inside of answering the question that somebody asked me. Cause I'm also the person that says, don't ask me questions you don't want the answers to. But we wanted that answer. We wanted that answer. Right. It will be uncomfortable sometimes. It's okay. I love Anna Wintour. I love it. And we should be talking about this. Where is my cover? Yes. Where is Billy Porter's Vogue cover? Hello. I changed the conversation. I went to the Oscars and put my reputation and my life and my career on the line and wore a ball gown to the Oscars. It could have gone horribly wrong for me. That's all I'm talking about. <laughs> it's just a different journey for people of color. You know, it's a different kind of fight for us. And at the end of the day, we want to reap the benefit of the work that we've done. That's all. And in this fashion space, a benefit is, for me, being the first man on the cover of Allure. I got that. I was the first Black queer man on the cover of Essence. Work. You know, these are the spaces and these are the, the systems to break down. You know, this is the new day. And I'm just talking about that. So, like... Please, no shade on Harry Styles. He looked great. <laughs> and it was a great cover, too. But don't ask me how I feel about something. And then, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you don't like the answer. And then all of a sudden, I'm trying to bring down Harry Styles. That's not how it went. And I would love to reframe negative. Not about negative comment. It's about the truth. Billy, let's talk about blazing trails in other realms. Let's talk about investing the work, especially people of colour, and paying off. In 2019, you made history with your Emmy win. You became the first openly gay black man to win in the category of Best Actor in a Dramatic Series for your work as Pray Tell on Pose. You wore, of course, a really memorable outfit, including a great hat. Google image search that, everyone. And you quoted the writer James Baldwin. You quoted, It took many years of vomiting up all the filth I had been taught about myself and halfway believed before I could walk around this earth like I had the right to be here. You know, such powerful words that speak to deep pain there, Billy. And I wonder, to what extent has playing Pray Tell been part of a healing experience for you? 
Well, pray tell is all of the healing experience. You know, when I got the role, I knew immediately that it would be a different kind of process, a different kind of character, a different kind of healing for me, because it would require me to go back into my own history and face it and look at it. You know, Pray Tell stood in proxy for Billy, for my own expression, for my own journey through the shame of my own HIV positive diagnosis and helped me get to the other side of the shame of that so I could live in some space of joy and some space of peace. It really has done that for me. And I am just so grateful. We as artists have a very specific and particular kind of space to work through our trauma. And that's what my book is about. It's about healing trauma through art and the power of that. And my hope is that people can receive that. Well, the story of the role of Pray Tell and how that character came into existence is so special because without Billy Porter, there would be no Pray Tell. Essentially, that role was created specifically for you. Yes. Which is such a rare opportunity, I think, in a career to have that really rare. that kind of bespoke. But even despite all that, you write in your memoir that Ryan Murphy had to still really push you to really embody and inhabit that role that you were still holding back. What was holding you back? It was subconscious, but I was told I'm too much. I'm too black. I'm too gay. I'm too over the top. I'm too flamboyant. I'm too, you know, and especially for film and television, I was not having a lot of success in that area. And so I get this gig and, you know, we're shooting the first ball sequence and I'm standing at the podium and, you know, and I'm thinking in my head, okay, well, I got this television show, so I'm going to do my television version and I'm not going to be over the top and I'm not going to be too much. And everybody's going to be pleased with how I can make it smaller for TV and all of those things. And I was really excited to do it. And I did it. And Ryan Murphy (laughs) yelled cut and came in and said, no, I need everything. I need every part of you. Don't worry about what they told you before. Don't worry about that. It's a new day and I need all of it. So give me all of it right now, please. And that was freeing. And I said, once you unleash the Kraken, she don't go back in. (laughs) And he said, unleash her, unleash the Kraken. So, <laughs> Billy, this year saw the third and final season of Pose, which meant that we also last saw Pray Tell. We wrapped up Pray Tell's story too. Do you miss playing Pray Tell? I have to say it's bittersweet. It is time to tell a new story. You know, I remember going in the day that I was shooting Pray Tell's death. And I said to the whole cast and crew, it's the death of Pray Tell. And it's the rebirth of Billy. And in that rebirth, we've all been given the power and the space to tell a new story. And I'm excited for the stories to come. I'm excited. My new music, I dropped a single called Children with my new record contract. And it's an anthem to all of the queer kids and adults who need to know that they're not alone and that the power is within us to call to action, to remind the world who we are. You know, I just had the opportunity to direct my first feature film for Orion Pictures and MGM, and it's a coming-of-age romantic comedy in the spirit of the old John Hughes movies. And it follows a black transgender high school girl. It's about trans joy. You know, it's time to tell stories about our community that are joyful as well. You know, that embrace the hope and the family and the joy. I will repeat, joy. It is joyful to be queer in this world. There is joy. There is love. There is compassion. There's peace. And, um, I'm ready to tell those stories. Billy, in the spirit of joy and new stories, you popped up in the video for Lil Nas X's That's What I Want. And it seemed to me like a kind of a a moment pregnant with meaning in the church 
and Lil Nas X is walking down the aisle in a white wedding dress and you at the altar pass this electric guitar to him. Like to me, that was a very symbolic kind of passing of the art, really. Is that an affirmation to you that culture is changing, that popular culture is becoming more joyfully queer and in doing so in a more safe and accepting space? More joyfully Black and queer, to be more specific. You know, and this links back to the Harry Styles conversation. What white people don't understand very often, especially in the queer space, is that it's different for us. The homophobia in the Black community, in the Latin community, is really, really intense. When we think about the stories that were told in the queer space at the beginning, they were all about white boys. And I am so grateful that I have lived long enough to see the day where this black boy queer joy is front and center. And so, yes, it is about passing something down, but also for me, being able to experience the change in real time. You know, the fact that somebody like Lil Nas X can exist, it takes my breath away, y'all. It is magical. It is profound to me. It was not possible. And I lived to see the day when it is possible. That is enough. You know, that is enough. And I just want to build on that energy and make sure that I'm adding to that conversation in my work, in my art, and in my life. Billy Porter, we are so glad you exist and you have a magical and profound effect on us. Billy, thank you so much for talking to Stop Everything. Thank you. Billy Porter's memoir, Unprotected, is published by Abrams Books and is available wherever you buy or borrow books. And that is it for this long weekend highlights edition of Stop Everything. However you celebrate, we hope that you've had a good long weekend. You can find Beverly and me on social media, Twitter and Instagram, and you can follow Stop Everything on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. And when you follow Stop Everything in your podcast feed or on the ABC Listen app, it means you never miss any of our interviews, reviews, and conversations. Wonderful news. So just for example, you might be driving around town, doing what you do whenever the show is on, listening to RN, engrossed, gripped by one of our interviews. But alas, you must decamp from your car because you had to get on with your day. That is okay because the podcast feed has got you covered. If you look for us in the ABC Listen app, tap on Browse in the bottom right corner of the app. Search for Stop Everything and tap the star to add us to your favourites because we are your favourites. And after that, we'll never leave you. And then the next time you come back to the app, you just go straight to your favourites. You'll see Stop Everything there. And you can browse through all of our past episodes for conversations about Byron Bays and just like that, Bridgerton, Awards Season, Lisa Wilkinson, Solo Margarita, and interviews with amazing guests like you've just heard, like the great Billy Porter, Simi Lou, so, so many more there. Stop Everything is produced on the lands of the Eora and Kulin Nations and on the land of the Mulanina people from country around Nipaluna. See you next week, Beverly. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.